Well, hello everyone. It's a joy to see all of you guys here tonight. Tonight's back to a little bit more normal uh, Thursday night as in comparison to last week with the podcast. But with that being said, I do hope that you guys really did enjoy the live podcast recording and the fruit of it has already kind of been seen. Uh, as I know, it will continue to as well. So if you didn't already notice, Cody is not here today. Uh, he is actually in Tennessee officiating the wedding of a former member and actually a former intern of his uh, in this ministry as well. So as that is said, I have the privilege of opening up God's word and preaching through it today. So that being said, the topic and the title of this message is going to be responding to the holiness of God. So first, before we fully dive into things, I have a couple questions for you. Have you guys ever had something absolutely blow your mind or capture your heart, whether that be the formation of a hobby or a uh, lifelong love of something? Uh, this could be through some kind of landscape or beautiful um, architecture, or it could be from an experience that made you really, really want to pursue a certain career in your future. Or maybe you've just experienced a TV show or something in popular culture that has captured your attention and made it into a lifelong hobby. Let me give you some examples for those. First, let's think of the pop culture movie icons, Star Wars, Harry Potter. I bet if you guys think, you guys can all think of someone who either knows a little bit too much about the lore of a specific universe in whatever movie, or they may have even decorated their house with probably one too many props from the movie series. All right, maybe that doesn't resonate that much with you. Let's go to the architecture and naturescape. If people have gone overseas and seen some of the great wonders of the world, you've, they probably came back and said the awe and amazement that they've seen when they witnessed the Northern Lights. They wish that they could be uh, in Paris spending a night just like they did prior or they wish that they could reach the highest peaks of Mount Everest or any of the other tallest mountains in the world. Well, all of these that you can see capture the amazement of the heart and of the mind of those individuals who witness them, whatever it may be, movie nature or whatever. However, I give you all these examples and ask these questions because if these things can, how much more can God? None of these, no matter how great, no matter how beautiful, exciting they may have been, none of them hold a candle to the glory of God. When we see and realize God's glory, it can and will change us. So uh, in the text today, we are going to see that that happened to the prophet Isaiah. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. I'll give you a second before I start reading it. Already, Isaiah, starting in verse 1, says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. 
And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt has, is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. So just as we saw, God's glory has so much more power to astound us than any of the things and any of the examples that I already laid out a little bit ago. However, through this text, God is giving us a realization that you can't be sold out for the mission of God until you've seen the glory of God. That'll be up on screen, but I'll say it one more, again for, one more time for, you guys, for your note takers. You can't be sold out for the mission of God until you've seen the glory of God. All right, so now that we've read through the text once and now that it, that's laid out, a little bit of context in regards to where we are in the book of Isaiah. So the book of Isaiah, if you guys did not know, is one of the major prophet books of the Bible. In it, obviously, there is prophecies that were directed to the original audience who would have read it, as well as there are prophecies that still have been yet to be fulfilled today. So that is absolutely astonishing to me. I love that God's word is so living and active to the fact that a book that is written so, so long ago can still have prophecies that we have yet to see in fruition. With that being said, the specific dating of Isaiah is about 700 to 740 years before Christ. So once again, that, that just blows my mind. That's something that would be dated about 2,800-ish years ago still holds so much value and so much truth. Okay, but back to the text at hand. In reading as a whole, we get an idea of what these verses are about. This is about a vision that Isaiah received in the year that King Uzziah died. That gives us the dating of the 700-ish years before Christ. But through this vision, we see that Isaiah is in awe, he is humbled, and he is gracefully broken. All right, let's break it down further. All right, looking at verse one, we not only see when the vision came to him, but we also start to get an idea of the glory and majesty of God. Now, as we continue through this message and through the text, keep in mind what's up on the screen right now. Keep in mind that main idea. Um, not that. <laughs> yeah, keep in mind the main idea that you can't be sold out for the mission of God unless you've seen the glory of God. And you will see that Isaiah even has this train of thought further throughout the, the text. So, uh, as Isaiah starts, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That is our God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits in his rightful place on the throne, higher than any other thing. Now, we hear this a lot, especially, obviously, if we attend any church, any Bible-preaching church, we hear this a lot. We can be somewhat detached from this. Obviously, we don't have royalty or kings like the time period that this would have been written in. The closest thing we have is just symbol figures in royal families. But realize that 
In the times when this were written, there were literal kings who had power and authority and say over nations, over places. So realize that every single king that has ever existed and has had authority, God is king and Lord over every single one of those. So that part we may have a decent grasp on. Now the second part of verse one may seem a little bit strange or you may even be asking why it's there. To the original audience though, it is significant. So in regards to the train of his robe, the only time you guys will really see or understand what that means is, say if you look up a video of like a royal wedding. The bride in a royal wedding, her dress will train on for feet and feet and feet. Back in the day when this was originally written, those trains were a sign of strength and security for the king's place on the throne. So here we don't just see that it's long by the standards of men at the time, but we see that it says in the text that his robe filled the entire temple, obviously pointing to the fact that God is completely secure in his spot and his absolute uniqueness apart from all of creation as he sits on his throne. Okay, look at verse two with me. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. All right, let's pause for a second. I bet many of you guys, when you think of angelic beings of any sort, you'd probably be inclined to talk about the ones that popular culture represents. Some kind of beautiful human being adorned in white clothing, bright white wings, and maybe even emitting light. <laughs> that obviously is not the type of angels we are seeing here. If we were to witness what Isaiah just laid out as an angel here, we would be terrified in absolute fear, or at the very least, just an utter, sh utter shock of what we've seen. It's strange to even think what these would look like. If you were to look up pictures or old art of what of depictions of what these things might look like, it's mind-boggling. I'll actually have a few up on screen. Uh, so yeah, those are two different depictions. Uh, on the darker one, uh, the other things are cherubim. The seraphim would be the ones in the middle of that art. But guess what? Even these things, which look absolutely crazy, as we will see later in verse five, are not what Isaiah is terrified of, but rather it is the glory of God that is being unveiled to him. All right, another part of verse two that shows this is the seraphim's wings. It says that the seraphim with two of the wings covered their faces. Even these supernatural beings hid their face from God. This isn't the only part of scripture that we see this idea of hiding your face from God. Another great example is Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30. We see Moses coming down from Mount Sinai um, after, uh, after talking with God. And from the secondhand glory of God, Moses' face was literally shining. The text says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that his skin, uh, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. The people of Israel were literally afraid at a secondhand glimpse. They were afraid at someone who had themselves been close to the glory of God, which is crazy. 
They just received a small secondhand glimpse of God, but yet they were so afraid of it. Think elsewhere in the Old Testament. We see that people would literally drop dead from a firsthand encounter with the glory of God. If that's not mind-blowing, I just don't know what is. All right, back to the passage at hand. Look at verses three and four with me. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now in verse three, we see one of the main purposes of those supernatural beings. They fly around God and continuously just echo the same words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now notice, this isn't the only part in scripture, but right here as well, they repeat the word holy three times. That is to emphasize how holy is, holy God is. His absolute uniqueness from all of creation in this and his absolute morally purity in this as well. So now the second part talks about his glory filling the entire earth. Think back to the questions I asked you about the nature and landscape. Those things like Mount Everest and the Northern Lights and a night in Paris and all these wonderful things that are considered wonders of the world that captures our attention, that's not nature just being nature and nature itself being inherently beautiful. That is God unveiling a glimpse at his glory through those spots in nature. He created it all and all points back to him and gives him praise in doing so. I know I love a good sunrise and a good sunset, but even those serve at pointing us to the glory of God. This is evident in Psalm 65, verse 8, when it says, So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So next time you're blown away by a beautiful moment in nature, realize what it actually is. It isn't just nature and its beauty, but it's God's creation pointing back to the creator. Verse four here in this text is similar but different. Instead of just showing his glory and beauty through creation, it's showing God's power. The ground, the foundations literally shook when God spoke to Isaiah. And not only that, but we see that the house was filled with smoke. Elsewhere in scripture and specifically in the Old Testament, we see that when God was near, there was a cloud of smoke or also sometimes referred to as a cloud of glory whenever God was around. This should all make us just think about how absolutely gloriously powerful God is. All right, continuing on in verse five, it says, and I said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. First, a couple of things to note here. These are actually the very first words that Isaiah has spoken himself. That wasn't a direct revelation from God. And what is he saying? He's literally saying when he experienced the glory of God, woe is me, which effectively means him admitting that's it. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm cursed. I accept my fate. But as crazy as that is, I find the next part even more astonishing. How does he describe his own sinfulness? 
He says, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. This makes me pause. This, is border, this borderline doesn't make sense. This is Isaiah, a prophet of the Lord, someone who speaks on behalf of God to the people of God. But yet, he says that his lips are the things that are unclean. He realized in this moment that even his most notable feature or most prominent gifting is absolutely nothing before God. This is once again tying back into the main idea of the message. You can't be sold out for the mission of God unless you've seen the glory of God. We are starting to see this play out in the text in Isaiah here. But not only does it apply to Isaiah, it can apply to us as well. So therefore, I have three points for you guys tonight. The first one is humble yourself or God will humble you. We can fall into the trap of thinking that we are so much better than we are, that we are so good and so gifted at whatever we may be gifted in. But when we realize that before God we are nothing, it completely changes us. Paul is a great example of this. In Philippians 3, we see that Paul, prior to his conversion, was a Pharisee. Someone who believed, who was believed to be gifted in the understanding and application of the law of God in their lives. In talking about this and his conversion to faith, Paul writes, If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. But as we all know, Paul was humbled. Jesus came to him and exposed his sinfulness and inadequacy before God himself. When we realize and have a moment like this, where we are utterly nothing before God, we realize that whatever giftings we have are from God and point us back to him and his glory, not our own. So tying into that, the second point we can get from verse 5 is repent. There's a quote from a theologian that I love. Uh, the theologian's name is R.C. Sproul, and it says, The closer we are to God, the more the slightest sin will cause us deep sorrow. This is true. The more and more we understand God and recognize his holiness and the glory of him, the greater we realize that we are still sinful. When we compare ourselves to God in his absolute righteousness and us, <laughs> It will absolutely shake you down to the core. But if anything, this makes the gospel just that much sweeter. Realizing that even though we are still sinful, God sent his son for us. It just shows us how awesome he really is. Now, this may sound like a bad thing, but this is God setting us back in line, if you will. Returning us from our sinful haughtiness to humble gratitude. So don't think too highly of yourself to not confess your sins and repent from them. Look at verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In these two verses, we see something that we all know. God is a God of atonement. 
he had the seraphim go to Isaiah, who had just confessed to having unclean lips and cleansed him of his sin. It's a big point. God went directly to what he self-proclaimed was his sinful attributes, and he cleansed it of it. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Well, isn't that a turn of events and emotions? We just see someone who is accepting their fate, saying, I'm absolutely dead, I'm gone, I'm nothing, to someone who had just experienced the glory and grace of God, responding gracefully broken. And that's the final point, final main point of tonight's message. Be gracefully broken. I personally love this idea. This is one of the main reasons why this text right here, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, is actually my favorite part of Scripture in the entire Bible. Sorry, I lost my place in my notes. There we go. (laughs) So it should make us, when we see the glory and experience the grace of God, it should make us want to respond gracefully broken. But you may be asking, how exactly do we do that? I have two practical steps for you. The first way to be gracefully broken is by answering God's call. Isaiah did it here in verse 8 and then subsequently in the rest of the book of Isaiah. He did just as the Lord asked. However, there is something else that is evident in how he responded in verse 8. Look at, the actual, look at his actual spoken response in verse 8. Here I am, send me. He didn't respond with a begrudging, yes, Lord, or just outward obedience. No, he said with exclamation, here I am, send me. This is the next subpoint. Be gracefully broken by being willing. Answer God's call on your life. This points back to, once again, that main idea. You can't be sold out for the mission of God until you've seen the glory of God. When we experience even a taste of his glory, it should shake us to our core. It should change our very lives, change the way we think about things, change the way we see the world. So I challenge everyone here to do that, to realize and reflect on the way that God has unveiled his glory in your life. And then hopefully and prayerfully through that, you will respond in a major, even radical way to what God is calling you to do. This could be in the form of a major or career change. It could change the way you see yourself or see your future in the next five to 10 years. It could make you realize that you're being called to be a missionary in some far off land, or it could just even be calling you to change how you serve the church and those around you. In reflection and prayer, you may even realize that he is calling you to do something that you never thought you would do. I emphasize that one because that is my story. For those of you who don't know me very well or haven't heard my story, I was in my last, finishing up my last couple semesters at Iowa State for mechanical engineering. When God said, yeah, guess what? That's not it. God, through, <clears throat> through the different ministries I was a part of and through realizing his glory and grace in all aspects of the world and the community he put around me, he radically changed my life. And he showed me that that is not what he has for me. Because of that, I responded in obedience, stepping away from my major and a good career in engineering and everything like that. 
to the dismay and confusion of some people around me, but I responded saying, yes, Lord, here I am. And here's one thing that I, two things I will say with that. One, I would not change it for the absolute world. I am so, so thankful for the work that he did in me and did around me to bring me to where I am right now. And I also want to say that I'm not trying to make it sound easier than it is. It took me over a year of prayer and reflection to understand what God had for me. But God can and will call you to do things that you have no idea you will ever be doing. So in closing, don't be afraid to be radical, to take the step that God is calling you to do. Allow yourself to be humbled before a glorious and wonderful God. Allow yourself to respond gracefully broken and be willing to take the next step in his plan for your life. There is ultimately nothing better that you can do than to use your individual gifts and life to serve God. So let's pray and ask God to shake us to our core and help us to respond like Isaiah. Here I am, send me. Your Father in heaven, I just thank you so, so much for your word. God, I thank you that your word is just still so, so strong and powerful today, God. I just pray that you can use your word, God, to just penetrate all of our hearts. God, grow in us a calling and an understanding of what it is you want us to do that you have made us to do, God. I pray that through all of life, God, you can just unveil your glory more and more and allow that to just radically change us, God. I pray that there will be, that there will be people in this room who will radically change their lives to go on mission for you, whatever that may be. God, you are so, so good. We love you and we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.